0: If you're a guest, either in person or online, I'm David, I'm the pastor, we're glad you're here, either way, it is just exciting to be able to not have empty chairs, sit on the front row as always, but uh, to have you there and and worshiping in person, uh, more this week, probably looks like twice as many this week as last week, Uh, last week we still had a great online presence, Is about what we've been averaging and our online presence has grown just greatly and was just super cool and so... We're getting back in the swing of things, you know, and hopefully a few more next week with uh, with the kids coming back, the little ones, to hair, and then, in, you know, opening up in July a little bit more, and here and there, and hopefully by September, right, it kind of goes back September, just be back to where we were before, you know, just breaking it in slowly but surely, whatever happens, we'll, we'll start serving coffee soon, I'm sure the free coffee will bring out some people, you know, and eventually we'll have pastries, I miss watching you eat in front of me as I preach, that's a... Uh, Something I kind of got used to in doing that. But hey, it's just good to see you. We're, we're finishing up today, uh, May, May 31st. Summer kind of starts, you know, not officially, but summer starts for us tomorrow. All our summer stuff that we usually do in June, we've kind of pushed back. So we're still going to try to get youth camp in, children's camp, VBS. We're working on getting all everything nailed down. So we're going to do all that stuff. But today we're going to finish up on the road with Elijah. That's been our series. Elijah's all over the place, man. He, he's traveling here and there. And, and in this series... You know, Elijah was this ninth century prophet that's, you know, from 875 to about 853 B.C. And Elijah had this confrontation with Ahab, and today we're going to see with Ahab's uh, firstborn son. And, and this confrontation reflects a bigger confrontation between the one true God and the false worship of Baal. Uh, it's, like I said, it's kind of ironic that a God that doesn't exist is in conflict with not only the God that exists, but creates everything. But it's, just, it's this larger picture of man in rebellion against God. And so this is what makes this Elijah narrative from 1 Kings chapter 17 through 2 Kings chapter 2 so important. And so far what we've seen is we bring everything to a conclusion. We saw him on the road to Zarephath and we saw that God is sovereign. He's always in control. We saw him on the road to Carmel where God allows no one to worship him or follow him part time. We saw God on the road to Horeb where we see that God has a purpose for our life. Last week we saw God on the road to Jezreel, where God is a just God, setting all things straight. Today, we are seeing in 2 Kings chapter 1 and chapter 2, on the road to heaven, because when this is over, Elijah's in heaven. And uh, so what I want to do today is just kind of share this with you. This is what I want you to see from the message. The final and ultimate authority is always God's revealed word. In case you wonder what our final authority is in our lives as a follower of Jesus, what the ultimate authority is in our lives, it is always the revealed word of God, and that revelation is seen most completely and perfectly we would understand in Jesus Christ. And so we come in the beginning in chapter one today, and we come to see this, that uh, I use a little King James on you, but it works, "Thus saith the king, never tops, thus saith the Lord. The word of the king never took priority over the word of God. Now, one of the things, as you begin to see unfold really in the Elisha, and then following the Elisha, the Elisha, Elisha chronicles the story, is you see, That there are really two, actually there's three, but two prominent offices in in the world of Israel. The king and the prophet. There's a third, which is the priesthood. But the priesthood was never that powerful. At least not, you know, in the Old Testament times. In time of Christ, the priesthood became powerful. But you you see, you know, the king and and you see the prophets. And and the prophet's job was to keep the kings in check. According to the word of God. And so while the prophets may have served the king, they followed God. And you see conflict. And when you see conflict, the kings, you know, but rare cases, the kings, you know, gave way to the prophets, so they certainly didn't have him arrested or thrown in jail. And when they did, it ended horribly for those kings. You go to 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul's the king. Saul breaks the the word of God, he disobeys God. Samuel comes and says, you're going to lose the kingdom. And Saul doesn't have uh, Samuel arrested. Saul doesn't have him thrown in jail. Saul lives in fear of prophet Samuel because he represents the word of God. 2 Samuel 11, David sins with Bathsheba, has Uriah killed, he's the king, he gets that done. Nathan the prophet comes into his presence and condemns him for it, confronts him for it. David does not have Nathan arrested. He lives in fear of the word of God. He bows and humbly confesses his repentance before this prophet because the prophet spoke for God. And you really see this coming about in the whole Elijah Ahab story. In all the times Elijah confronts Ahab, Ahab never seizes or arrests Elijah. There is a certain distance, respect, fear of Elijah. Jezebel, you know, the, the queen who was from you know the worship of Baal, she threatens to take his life, but eventually she can't do it. She can't pull it off. There was just something about this mystique, this aura of the prophets. And now we come to this kind of final confrontation in, in the ministry of Elijah. In 1 Kings chapter 22, the last chapter, Ahab dies. Micaiah, that prophet, and says, Ahab, you're going to die. A different prophet, you know, kind of still authority of God. His son, Ahaziah, becomes king. He's only going to serve two years. He's an evil king. Not only does he have the worst tendencies of his father, but he also has his mama, Jezebel, that wicked woman, dominating his life. And so he only lasts two years. God gives him one shot to see if he's going to be different than his dad. And when he's not, he's through. And so what we have now is a confrontation that's going to exist between Ahaziah and Elijah. And Ahaziah is going to do something that his dad never did. He's going to try to dominate the prophet. So we pick up in verse 1. Here's what it says. Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. That's just setting context. And Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria, and he became ill. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you will surely die. And Elijah departed. Ahaziah is up on his balcony. He falls through the lattice. Some of you know, just like the lattice you may have at your house, fall through it. Off the balcony, as a result, he gets sick, infection, gangrene, who knows what. And so does he go to the prophet Elijah, or any of the prophets of God that are available, to say, you know, give me, some, give me a heads up. What's going to happen? Will I live? I you want know, to give my life to the Lord. I want to trust him. Hezekiah had done that. Later on, he would do that, I should say. No, he, he goes to the God a God of the Philistines, there were five Philistinian city-states, Ekron was one of them, and there was this God, they worshipped Beelzebub, the God, the Lord, I should say, of the flies. Baal means Lord, Zebub is flies, very similar to Beelzebub, which is the exalted Lord, but here's the Lord of the flies. Uh, From other sources, it seems, outside of the, uh, the Old Testament, it seems that there was an oracle, a prophet, a priest, whatever, in Ekron, and he would read the flies, you know how some people read tea leaves or read, you know, the palm of your hand or whatever. He would read the flies to give what the god Beelzebub was going to do, which you know, is totally absurd. When you're taking your medical advice and flies, you, you might have a problem in your medical device. Yeah, go to Google. I mean, it's much simpler, I know. I, I have four or five hundred diseases, according to Google right now. But when, you know, they would go, and so here's what this king's going to do. He's, he's going to go seek the advice of this crazy, non-existent, fly-interpreting God through an oracle. So he sends this man, and God tells Elisha, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord says, I've had enough, go deal with this. And so Elisha says, what I want you to tell him, is it because you don't have me, the Lord, to go to? I am your God. So you're, you're just going to die. You're not recovering. I've had it with the whole Ahab thing, you guys. And so what we see then in um, verse 5 through 8 is that's what happens. He goes, he tells them, the guys go back to uh, Ahaziah. Ahaziah says, you haven't been gone long. What happened? Well, we met this other prophet. What do you look like? They describe him So that's Elijah. And then Ahaziah does something that his daddy never did. He's going to try to exert dominance over Ahab. And the story that follows seems a little strange to us in 21st century America. But you've got to put it in its context. And so here's what we see. In verse 9, the king sent him to him, that is to Elijah, a captain of 50 with his 50. And he went up to him. Behold, he was sitting on top of the mountain the hill. And the king, and, and he said, as the captain said to him, Oh, man of God, the king says, come down. And Elijah replied to the captain of 50. If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. And this seems a little bizarre, even a little bit cruel, but you need to understand something. The king sent the captain to take the prophet according to the word of the king to come into the presence of the king. The king was now dominating the prophet. He was exerting his power over the prophetic office. Kings may request prophets to come, and Ahab had even done that, but now he's demanding him Here's the thing. The captain had an option. And the option was, he could have gone to Elijah and said, "Look, our king's office rocker. He sent this. I know it's not right, but would you consider coming?" No. He said, "Man of God." Now, reference to him as a man of God simply means that you're the man of God. This is what the king says. So he is acting just like the king wanted him. He's just proxy. He's he's totally responsible for his actions. You, man of God, become subject to the authority of the king. And Elijah simply said, if you're right, and I'm really the man of God, you need to understand that the prophetic office will never bow down to the office of the king. So God will decide that God bring fire down, just as he had done in chapter 18 of 1 Kings at Mount Carmel. When God demonstrated he's the one true God, not Baal. And now God's going to demonstrate the king doesn't dictate to the prophet. And so if you understand the context, fire comes down. The king doesn't get it, so he sends another captain. Captain does the same thing, same result. Evidently, the king has a plethora, oh, that's the plethora, has a, a large number of captains. Plethora would mean a variety of captains, so I misspoke in the grammar. I don't know why that I did that. You've been gone so long, and I'm just you know, using words I've never used before. I have a whole vocabulary to catch up on. He must have a large number of captains because he sends a third. He doesn't care about his captains. This captain has some smarts to him. He says, Elijah, please don't kill us. Please don't kill us. Could you come? And the Lord says to Elijah, yeah, okay, you can go. It's The Lord who de- the Lord decided that Elijah would go down. Because the word of the Lord never comes under the authority of the word of the king. So he shows up in verse 16. Then Elijah said to him, that is Ahaziah, thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Akron, it is, because, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And so Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. So Elijah said, you try to exert power over the prophet, over the Lord. Not going to happen. You're going to die. And now everybody will know who's in control. That's what it boils down to. And he died, because he does not dictate to the prophet. You see, here's what the prophet said To the prophet, the word of God always took priority over the word of the king. The word of God Always takes priority over the word of the king. It's hard sometimes to take what's in the Old Testament and transition it into our world. It's a different culture. Completely different. Some different understandings. Their knowledge of God is far less than our knowledge. They didn't have a Bible. They didn't have the Old Testament. They're they're kind of in the process of writing the Old Testament. They don't have it yet. Plus, we to understand that ultimately we see everything from the perspective of Christ. One of the things I teach constantly is the Old Testament promises us something that the New Testament fulfills Jesus. God reveals himself to us through his word. He reveals himself to us in the Old Testament, but he does it progressively, bit by bit, piece by piece. We learn more and more about God. The ultimate revelation of God is Jesus. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And John 1, says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the ultimate word of God. The ultimate revelation of God to man is Jesus. We filter everything through Jesus. So when we understand that, thus saith the king, never tops, thus saith the Lord. We see that through Christ. And so it kind of brings us, just the way that God worked it out, brings us in this message at this point to what we've been kind of going through the last, you know, two and a half, three months. A lot of people, when this pandemic starts, you know, how do you respond to the things we've been told to do in our country and shutting down churches for a while and all that? And a lot of people refer to Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2, where Paul in Romans and Peter in the book that bears his name reminds us that we should obey the civil authorities. And we should. This is legit. Obviously, it's in God's word. But also, just remember this. I always have to remind the people who quote that, that both Paul and Peter died disobeying the civil authorities. (laughs) So, you know, Paul and Peter at some point said, hey, you know what, there's a limit to what we're going to do according to the civil authorities. And then, you know, Nero killed them for it. So just remember all that. Peter, early in the ministry of the church, early on, makes a brilliant, brilliant statement that should be of fundamental importance to us. In Acts chapter 5, he's in front of the Jewish ruling council, the people that put Jesus to death. The high priest says to him, most likely if it's still Caiaphas, it would be Caiaphas who was over saw the, the, the uh, trial of Jesus. Caiaphas says, we ordered you, we ordered you, we commanded you not to preach in the name of Jesus. That was our order to you. Peter says, well, we're going to obey God and not man, so I don't know what to tell you. Because we're not going to obey that. He got that, He got that understanding from Christ. Jesus was not a political figure. I'm amused and oftentimes irritated when people try to co-opt Jesus to their political view. Because I'm going to be honest with you. There's only one time in all of the Gospels that I see Jesus ever making anything close to a political statement. He just didn't. Matthew chapter 22, the Tuesday before his death. The religious leaders want to trap Jesus. So they, they come up with this plan. They say, should we pay taxes to the Romans? Because they know the common people hated the Romans and did not want to pay taxes. And if he said, yeah, pay taxes to the Romans, they would just push Jesus aside and, and discard him as Messiah Have nothing to do with him. If he says, no, don't pay the tax, then the Romans are going to see that he's an insurrectionist and they're going to want to put him to death. And so they went either way. So Jesus, first of all, called them hypocrites in twenty-two, chapter 22. He said, you guys are hypocrites, man. He said, bring me the coin. And the coin, he says, whose picture's on it? And they said, Caesar. And then Jesus gave this phenomenal... Absolute principle of all principles. He says, You give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and you give to God what belongs to God. Pretty simple. Throughout this whole situation we've been in, the underlying principle that I have followed is to figure out what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God and act accordingly. Didn't worry about the First Amendment, that wasn't an issue. I know it's an issue to a lot of people. As a citizen, got it. Pastor, not an issue. So when, you know, at first we needed to stop meeting because we were concerned about the health and safety of people. I said, that's legitimate. And as a pastor, we're going to shut down our services, uh, as they've asked us to, because we need to worry about people. But knowing at some point we were going to come back to worship. And we could also worship online, and, and, and that actually helped us increase our online presence. So our online worship experience got a whole lot better. And we'll continue forward from this. But eventually you have to worship in person. You can only worship, you know, people who say you can worship online just as well as you can in person. That's a moronic statement. Of course you can't. We're created to worship together. We're told to worship together. Hebrews chapter ten, verse twenty-five: Do not forsake assembling together with one another. You need to worship together. And so our goal, my goal, always was to come back. And I actually set a goal to come back the first Sunday in June. Uh, I was hoping the governor would go along with that, but we, one way or the other. We were coming back, and as turns out she allows us, you know, in her view of things, to come back earlier. So we now we're worshiping. So that's cool. That worked out. So, but uh, to come back to worship, the governor said, the "Governor said you can worship." But you can't chant or sing. Now, I like a good chant as much as the next person. (laughs) But we ain't chanters, but we're singers. And so as soon as she said that, I said, well, we're not going to do that. We're going to sing. Why? Well, Psalms 100 verse 2 says, sing with joy before the Lord. Commanded to do that. Colossians 3, 16, Paul says with thankful hearts, sing before him. We're called and commanded to sing. It's not the kings, the queens, the prince, the president, the governor, the mayor's place to tell us what we can or can't do when we worship. It's not because of the Constitution, because of the word of God. See that? So here's the thing. The final authority over whether we are following God or man is the word of God. Ultimately, the word of God dictates our life. Any chance we can do what Caesar wants us to do, if it fits the word of God, we'll go with Caesar. Paul tells us to, Peter tells us to, Jesus tells us to. But when Caesar conflicts with the word of God, we're always going to go with the word of God. It is the final authority. Thus saith the king, never tops, thus saith the Lord. The second thing we need to see, and this is important, that God works through us, but he always has another us ready to go. God works through us, but he's always got another way to go. Uh, Roger Staubach, who I love, um, Joe Montana, John Elway, Troy Aikman, Steve Young, Brett Favre, Peyton Manning, and that guy uh, from New England, now was at Tampa, I can't remember his name. Oh yeah, Tom Brady. <laughs> have some things in common. They all won Super Bowls, some of them have won multiple Super Bowls. They're all in the Hall of Fame, or they're guaranteed to be in the Hall of Fame. And Drew Brees and Aaron Rodgers fit that bill, too, but they don't fit the following. And every one of those guys was replaced. Every one of them. Tom Brady went to Tampa Bay. When he went to Tampa Bay, the New England Patriots didn't say, you know what, can't place Tom Brady, we're not going to have a quarterback this year. Even though the quarterback's the single most important position in any sport, we're not going to have a quarterback, because you can't replace Tom Brady. I hear people say, Tom Brady can't be replaced. Sure he can, they replaced him with Jared Stidham. He's not going to be as good as Brady. That's not this. He's everybody's replaceable. Here's the thing you need to understand from chapter two: no one is irreplaceable. No one. It's hard for me to realize that. You know, every church I, I discovered something. I was a little bit surprised. Every church I ever left replaced me. And, and I didn't understand how, how, how are you replacing me? Replace me? You'll replace me eventually. I'm going to leave one of three ways. I'm going to walk out on my own when the time comes. You're going to fire me, or I'm going to die. Hopefully I'll die preaching and make you feel guilty for what you did to me. But I'm one way or the other. And you're going to replace me. Probably with someone better. And you're probably thinking, That's, that, we look forward to that day. You know, it's good. I love all our staff guys. Our staff guys do great. I have contingency plans for every one of them. I do. If Joe, I, Joe Andrews does a good job, great job. He's a fantastic job. They all do. They all do great. But if he comes up to you tomorrow and says, Hey, David, you know, I'm going to another church and I'm going well, to work at the end of June and then I'm gone, you know, and I'm going to say, Are you sure? And, uh, and Joe knows this. And uh, I've told him this many times. And uh, if he says, Yeah, That moment on, Joe's dead to me. He is. He's dead. He's done. <laughs> My contingency plan is in place. I've I got guys, I already got some guys picked out. I'm ready to go, you know, just waiting on Joe. I mean, We'll have a party for him, and we'll have a fellowship, and we'll cry. And when the kids and Leanne leave, well, we'll miss you and all that. We'll keep in touch, and we never will. But here's the thing. No one is irreplaceable, not even Elijah. Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration, there's Moses, there's Elijah with Jesus. Do you know both Moses and Elijah? Moses the law, Elijah the prophets. They never finished the job God gave them, didn't. Exodus 3. God tells Moses, get the people out of Egypt, get them into the promised land, the land of the Canaanites. Moses did the whole Egypt thing, the plague's part of the Red Sea, does the Ten Commandments, never got them into the promised land. Joshua had to finish the job. Elijah, here's what I want you to do, Elijah. God said, I want you to oversee the destruction of Ahab's uh, the Omri dynasty, Ahab's family, anoint Haziel king of Syria, anoint Jehu king of Israel, anoint Elisha, the prophet, to succeed you and overthrow all of Ahab. He did one of those things. He got Elijah. Elijah finished the job. Elijah left undone. No one thinks that Joshua was greater than Moses. And no one thinks that Elisha is greater than Elijah. But they both finished the job. Here's the thing we are evaluated not on what we accomplished but on how we follow the Lord. You are evaluated ultimately in life, not on what you've got done, but how you follow the Lord, which brings us then in chapter 2. Everybody seems to know that Elijah is going to be taken up into heaven. Elijah knows it. Elisha knows it. The prophets all know it. Hey, Elijah's going to be taken up. What's going to happen? They're all anticipating. So with that in mind, Elisha is hanging with Elijah close. He's going everywhere. And so Elisha, he even tries to get rid of Elisha a couple of times when he can't. So they're at the Jordan River and this is what happens in verse 8. Elisha took his mantle and folded it together and struck the waters and they were divided here and there so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Four different times people of God depart the waters. Moses, Joshua, Elijah, and Elisha. Fascinating. When they had crossed over, Elisha said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let me uh, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, you shall not see it. It should not be so. So here's what happens. Elisha just asks his student, What do you want? I'm about to go. And it was not uncommon for fathers to ask sons towards death, what can I do for you? He asked, what a blessing. do you want a blessing? And Elijah said, I want a double portion. I want the inheritance of the firstborn. He's not saying I want twice as much power. He's not that. He's just saying, you're my spiritual father. I want to be your spiritual son. I want to continue your ministry. Give me a double portion. That was the right of the firstborn. And Elijah said, that's hard, man. It's not for me to say. It's up to God. But he says, I'll tell you what. If you see me when I ascend, if you see me, then probably God's going to do that. And so as we go on, You know, they're walking along and and God takes Elijah up into heaven. And Elisha sees it. And so we pick up in verse 14. He took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him, struck the waters and said, where's the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he also struck the waters, they were divided here and there. And Elisha crossed over. Now, the importance of the water. And you get the mantle, passing the mantle. When he took the mantle that Elijah used, Elijah parted the waters with the mantle to cross over on the one side of the Jordan. When he was taken up, Elijah grabbed that mantle, parted the waters again to cross back on the other side. That was God's affirmation that Elisha was following Elijah. Because no one is irreplaceable. Not even Elijah. Hey, is there one guy in the Old Testament irreplaceable? Moses, Elijah, no. They, they were replaced by guys who finished their job. And here's what's important about Elijah. Elisha then will anoint Haziel. he'll anoint Jehu, he will ha- make sure that the dynasty of Ahab is completely destroyed and obliterated, and then he will oversee the next dynasty, and Elisha will establish, as Elisha had begun, Elisha will finish establishing a very important principle in the life of Israel from this point forward, and that's this. Elisha established that God spoke through his prophets and revealed his authoritative word in them. From this point on, the authority in the life of Israel is not the king, it is the prophet. So when you read Samuel and Kings, which go together, you know, Samuel's all about Saul and David. It's all about those two kings. The, King, first Kings, the first half of First Kings, the first eleven chapters, is all about Solomon. And then all of a sudden Solomon's gone, there's chaos, and Elisha shows up in chapter 17. And now all of a sudden, Elijah and Elisha begin to dominate the story. It's still about the kings. It's still called the kings. You still see the story of the kings. But the prophets become more and more important. By the time Elisha goes away, you end up ushering in, out of the 9th century, into the 8th century. When you get to the 8th century, the great prophets that begin writing occur. Isaiah, Amos, Hosea, Micah. Those guys get onto the scene. You go into the 7th century, and even more of the writing prophets. And you get to the end of the 7th, beginning of the 6th, and you see, you know, the of ba- uh, Babylon's destruction of Israel, and it's in that period of time you have Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah and Habakkuk and Nehemiah and Haggai, and, you, you know, and then you go on and you see these other guys. The prophets dominate because they become the spiritual authority, because they represent the Word of God, and here's the principle that flows from that. And really, this sums up the entire ser- sermon series. In fact, I could have just said this day one at the very beginning. It would have ended the whole series. Could have come up with something else, but here it is. Follow the authority of the word of God. Because that's the authority. That's how God reveals himself. The ultimate authority is always God. How do we know what God wants? Because of his word. And his ultimate word is Jesus. Which is why we always follow Jesus. He is the Savior. He is God in the flesh. He is the ultimate word revealed to us. And so with that in mind, we follow him. Because he's the ultimate authority in our life. There's no one else. When you take this entire series, and you just take the the life of Elijah as he begins to unfold, you see kind of just, in essence, a systematic understanding of God revealing himself. And what you see is you see a, a God that reveals himself as being the authority of all life. You see a God that reveals that he is sovereign and in control of everything. You see a God who is just and sets everything right in life. You see a God that has purpose for us in our life. And you see a God that will not let us follow him part time. But demands that we give our entire life to him. You take that understanding seen through Jesus at the cross. And we must completely and totally give our life to Christ. There is no other way to understand the authority of God in our life. But through Jesus. Some of you today, the issue in your life is who is your authority? You're making it you. It can never be you. It must always be God. And so my encouragement to you, my invitation, whether you're here in person or you're watching you know, online, you who you or through uh, Facebook, is to give your life to Christ. Turn your life over to him, or at least begin the process of seeking Jesus as the authority of your life. If you're a follower of Christ, ask yourself, who is your authority? I mean, Who, who are you listen to throughout the day? What becomes your authority in life? Listen. Your authority is not man. Your authority is not the Constitution. It's a citizen maybe, but not as a father of Christ. Your authority is always Jesus. He is the authority of your life. Commit yourself to that. In a moment, we're going to have our invitation. We're not going to ask you to come forward again for another week, but if you need to give your life to Christ, you need to talk to one of us, to pray with you. After the service is over, uh, I will be back in the conference room and so one or two other guys, and you can come and talk to us. you're online, you can text, respond to a number that will pop up on the screen in a minute, or you can go on the website and, and, and email us. But the thing is, at some point in your life, you've got to understand for you that you can't let the authority of man, whoever that man may be, even yourself, guide your life. You must surrender to the authority of Jesus. Because there is only one ultimate and final authority, and that's the Word of God. So Father, we thank you that Jesus is the word of God. Thank you that he is God in the flesh. That he is the absolute authority of our life. Because he is your revealed word to us. So let us surrender to that authority. Let us surrender our life to Jesus as our savior. Surrender our life to Jesus completely to guide us. And let us, Father, trust Jesus through every decision we ever make. And in the end of all is said and done, Father, let us make sure That it's not our words or anyone's words that guide us. But your word, the word of God, Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? And you say.